Welcome to this week's energy show. You know, for businesses and consumers, it's great that oil and gas prices are so low. Oil's at like $30 a barrel now. And I looked on Google, I can actually buy a plastic barrel, 55-gallon drum, for $69 and a steel barrel for 56 So ironically, the cost of the barrel is more than the oil, but most people don't get crude oil in, in barrels. They get it in tankers. But the other thing is, I read the gas is as low as a dollar in some places. But in New Jersey, a friend of mine just pointed out it's down below a dollar and a half. So the question is, how long is gas going to stay low? How long will oil price stay low? And then for people in the renewable energy business, what's the linkage between oil prices and renewable energy? So from an economic standpoint, we're in uncharted territory. Cheap oil and gas is great for consumers. It's great for industry, for feedstocks. But low oil prices are turning out to be really bad for jobs in the fossil fuel industry. They're bad for banks that lent to oil companies, and we're going to be looking at some defaults there. And it's bad for countries that that are pumping oil and are completely dependent on crude oil exports. And some people, ironically, are even going to say it's bad for renewable energy because when oil prices are low, fewer people want to put in solar and wind. So it's potentially destabilizing, even though you know it, it, it's resulting in low fuel prices. But I'm just a solar guy. So when I have questions like these, I like to tap on experts. And it's my pleasure to have Jerry Appelstein, a petroleum industry expert, on the show today. And I've known Jerry since the 70s when he was studying chemical engineering in college. And I was just working on new solar thermal collectors. And obviously, he got a much better job than I did out of college. And he's one of the smartest people I know about the oil industry. So welcome to the show, Jerry. Could it have just been that I was just one of the smartest people you know and, and leave it at that? Barry, but uh, whatever. Well, well, you know, we every... should limit it. We should limit it to this very small part of the world, this petroleum industry and the whole oil segment. We can limit it to that. I yeah. feel very diminished. I know. I, everybody was smarter than me when I was at college. I just barely squeaked <laughs> yeah. by. I, yes. Yeah. While we were studying, you were building uh, state-of-the-art solar collectors, as I, as I remember, <laughs> which basically powered up. Uh, I think it was our entire floor. So let's just say uh, to our listeners out there that uh, Barry is no slouch. <laughs> thanks, thanks. So tell us a little bit about your oil industry background. You know, it really started back in 1975, and I had a little banana seat bicycle, and I remember driving it to the, the gas station when there was rationing going on, when the first oil embargo hit the U.S. And, I, you know, the license plates were odd number one uh, for Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, an even number. For Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. Sundays, I think all the stations were closed. And I had to wait in line for an hour to get a gallon of gasoline for my lawn mowing business. And I just knew at that time, I just wanted to uh, understand more what was going on, you know, what this oil market was about, what OPEC was doing. And so when I got into college, I knew that that was going to be my vocation. I took oil economics in college, my minor in economics, with a, a leaning towards understanding more about what's going on in the oil industry. Became a chemical engineer and knew that I wanted to work at that time for Exxon or Esso at the time, which was the vying for the number one, number two position as the largest company in the world behind at that time General Motors. So, I mean, it was uh, it really stems from that. And, and then once you get into the business, it's a very exciting business to be in. I, I remember being working for Exxon out of school, and one of the first jobs I had was in supply, and we were worrying about supplying crude oil to our refineries to produce gasoline and heating oil, and, you know, Iraq invaded Kuwait. I mean, it was just, that was the beginning of it. So I've always felt like I've been privileged enough to be really in the center, at the, at the heartbeat of what's been going on in the oil industry for much of my early career, and I just kind of stayed with it. 
that's that's terrific. And we both stayed with what we really liked and uh, what we thought would uh, drive the world or change the world. So let's talk about some of the factors that affect oil prices. I mean, what's what's keeping that price low, and where's it going to go in the future? Well, you know, as a disclaimer, I mean, I would not recommend any of your listeners to do anything as far as investing tied to anything that I'm going to say to you. But the fact of the matter is, is that we are at a and a, a disequilibrium point. We're in a dislocation point in oil prices that's uh, truly extraordinary and unsustainable. I mean, we flat out, I've just done the analysis in preparing for, for your show, and the average cost of producing you know, crude oil throughout the world is $38 a barrel. $38 a barrel. So we are at an $8 unsustainable point. $8 below break-even on average for the whole segment of the world that's producing oil in all its various different ways that we get at it. So something's got to give. We cannot stay long-term at a point where we're losing, on average, $8 a barrel producing the energy that's needed for the essentially the transportation segment because... And I know that you'll, you've probably told your listeners over the past that uh, there isn't that much true interaction between the crude oil markets and the solar and wind markets because they're basically just competing for different segments of the, of the energy pie. But So I think that we're at a, a low point that is rather extraordinary, and I believe is tied more to politics, world politics, than it is tied to fundamental supply and demand issues, although you can look at the charts and you can see that we are about 1.3 to 1.7 million barrels a day overproducing based on current demand. And we have inventories in the U.S. market that are essentially, if, if you believe the numbers, would suggest that if we put one more barrel into a tank, it's going to overflow and run into the dike systems that surround the tanks. So we are at essentially tippy-tops on how much crude oil can be stored uh, domestically. I mean, the next thing is basically just start putting crude oil and floating it on barges and ships. Wow. So when you're at that point, you know, what it would suggest is it's going to take a little while for us to pull ourselves out of this ridiculous low level uh, on crude prices. In fact, I also looked at gasoline prices, and literally about a week ago, we had 91 cents a gallon on the New York Mercantile Exchange, and that's where crude oil and, and heating oil and, and other energy commodities are traded, as you know, a lot of the rice and corn are, are traded on the COMEX, but oil products are traded on the New York Mercantile Exchange. And, I mean, 91 cent gasoline. I actually, you mentioned earlier in your, in your monologue, in your opening, below 150. We actually yesterday saw a gas station in New Jersey at $1.33. Wow. And wow. I, re- I, was, I was watching Terminator, and I don't know if you can call up when Terminator was, the first Terminator movie was released, and just as a chuckle, they had, uh, they had a gas station, and they were showing prices, and I believe the price on the gas station, yeah, 1984, the price is about $1.60 something a gallon. And here we are, you know, 31 years later, and we're actually below the prices from the Terminator movie. 
Yeah. That's just amazing. So, you know, we've got the worldwide supply and demand situation. And I guess as an industry, they're pumping at $8 below cost. So that's a macroeconomic issue. How do the microeconomic factors work for, for an oil company whose business it is to pump oil? And how could they continue to pump it at below cost? And how can these countries continue to pump it below their cost? I mean, where's the money coming from? Right. So I believe the microeconomic answer is political. And basically what's happening is we have, we have a war between the Sunni and Shiite Arab states. And Iran, which has been basically in conjunction with Russia, which has been stabilizing Syria, has annoyed the Saudis, the Kuwaitis, the Qataris. So there has been a desire politically for the Saudis in particular, who are the major producers here. They produce almost... Uh, they're actually over 10 million barrels a day of, of production, and the world demand is, is about 98. So think about how big Saudi Arabia is. It's 10 out of the 98. So they're a big player. And in the past, they have been one of the major stabilizing influences when we see perturbation in crude prices. They tend to be there to either increase production or lower production, and they have basically not turned the valve off. In fact, they're producing at essentially their maximum level, I think around 10.3. So why are they doing that? Well, if you're angry at, and this is Jerry talking, I'm speculating this, but I don't think that this is too far off. I don't think political commentators would give me too much trouble on this, but if you're not happy about how Russia is a major oil producer in their own right, and Iran, who's already having trouble with cash flow issues, you're going to keep overproducing, and because you have reserves, you have hundreds of billions of dollars of reserves, you can stand a several-year effort to not necessarily work at maximizing your profitability, but minimizing the, the cash revenues and essentially really hurting the economies of your two pains in the butts, in your view. So that's what they've been doing. And, and as a result, they've allowed the oversupply situation to continue, to continue, to continue. There's also some other reasons that you do that. If you are not happy about what's going on in the U.S., which is another major producer of, of oil, and you're not happy that shale oil has virtually doubled U.S. crude production since 2010, keep prices low, and what that will do is really put, which is the higher cost layer, shale oil is much higher cost, well over the $38. If you, if you go ahead and you keep prices low, you also can undermine the economics for that marginal barrel of shale oil. And, and as we are seeing in this country, we're already seeing some of the shale oil production getting shut in. So that answers your question a little earlier. What do you do when you're uneconomic? Well, unless you have real deep pockets, if you're uneconomic, you shut down. You don't continue to lose $8 a barrel producing. And it's even more than that for, for shale oil, especially if you look at the, the original capital outlays to acquire the land and put in the infrastructure. So but what's changing and why am I bullish that this won't be sustainable is what's changed is that there was a nuclear agreement signed with the Iranians. And essentially the EU and the U.S. said, we don't really want to go to war with Iran, so let's negotiate this agreement that's going to give us an 8 to 10 to 15 year window. Where we don't have to worry about them, at least overtly, going after nuclear weapons capability. And the outgrowth of, of that agreement is that $100 billion was released to the Iranians, essentially erasing the efficacy of what the Saudis have been trying to do. And 
And the reason that this is timely, this radio show, is that just recently, if, if you saw in the news, the Arab countries, including Venezuela, not Arab, of course, but Venezuela, let me say this, the oil-producing countries, got together in a meeting in the Middle East to discuss what are they going to do. And they included Iran. And the outgrowth of that meeting was that they would hold levels, hold production levels, which essentially does nothing, and that's why there wasn't much impact in the markets. But it was a first salvo. It was an attempt to feel out the Iranians to see if they would play ball, if they would take some of the percentage of allocation that's required to get us back closer to balance. Because we need about a one to one and a half million barrel a day cut in production from the producing countries. And that's the beginning of it. That was the original foray, and I believe that it's just the beginning, and ultimately they're going to have to get together to cut production, partly helped by what's going to happen in the U.S., which is that some of the shale oil-producing areas are going to stay shut in due to uh, bankruptcies and the like, and it'll take a while for that to clean itself up. So microeconomically, we're, this is why we're here, and I believe the political winds are changing. So kind of historically, and and it looks like it's developing again or being resurrected, is you've got these cartels where sometimes these countries don't really all get along, but it's in their mutual benefit to limit their production because if demand starts going up again, and it inevitably will when gas is so cheap and oil is so cheap, then the price of the oil is going to go up. And even if they're pumping at the same amount, they're they're all going to be making more money. But I just kind of think back to recalling what's happened in the past and looking at big spikes in oil prices, you know, when it just shoots up. It usually shoots up when there's some kind of destabilizing event or a war or some country invades another country. And, you know, when I look at the players in the Middle East, you know, Saudi Arabia and the the Sunnis, and they don't like Iran and the Shiites, and there's all this stuff going on in Syria, and now Russia is there. They're all oil-pumping countries. They're all kind of desperate. And none of them really seem reluctant to going to war. So if there were some kind of war over there, and, and, you know, war is always terrible, but that's going to make the price jump up immediately. And it would be good for all these warring countries from an economic standpoint. How do you think that could evolve? (laughs) Well, (laughs) let me just say this. I don't think that is in the psyche of these countries that they would consider some kind of a destabilizing action like like a war to prop up prices. I think that people need to understand that these are brilliant, brilliant minds that are running you know, Saudi Aramco and these national oil companies, I negotiated with them when I was with Exxon. The respect I have for them in understanding economics and the dynamics, and they have their price models, and they know, based on their production points, what the elasticity of the price curves are. They know if they cut X, that the likely impact is on prices is Y. They have a pretty good idea and understanding of this. What I will say is rather than speculate as to whether or not they would want to see a major, major reduction in availability of supplies coming out of the Middle East, is that, you know, everybody's watching Syria pretty carefully because you're hearing the Turks talking and the Saudis talking about land forces coming into Syria. And the reason is, is because the balance of the war is shifting clearly in favor of Hezbollah-backed Syrian, Syrian government with Russian help. And the rebel forces are appearing to be losing some of their grip on some of the long-held cities and positions that they've had in the country for several years now. So, you know, Russia's, I think, made a statement about a renewed Cold War. So uh, certainly the political factors there, that it is a tinderbox, and if Syria becomes a de facto place where 
the Sunnis and the Shiites with the assistance of the Russians and, and potentially the Turks on the other side. If that happens and it creates instability there, then, of course, you would see you know, a, a serious spike in crude oil prices. Yeah, I mean, it's a proxy war going on. I mean, I'm not suggesting that Russia's going to go to war with Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia's going to go to war with Iran, but they're all kind of fighting in Syria. And, and if they would just, you know, escalate that fighting to a certain degree, then that would create that instability that would raise prices. And right. they, they, they wouldn't have to cut their production. They could keep yeah, well, they, I feel very strongly that they don't want that, that there's been very, very clear back-channel discussions about who's where, with all these sorties and whatever you've noticed, there's been no, other than the Turks shooting down the, the Russian MiG, there has been really no, despite all of the different countries that are starting to get involved in Syria, there hasn't been any problem over the Syrian skies with, you know, the different countries, you know, uh, engaging each other by accident. I'm pretty optimistic that that won't happen. But, you know, the balance, the shift in the how well the Syrian government is doing with the assistance of the of the Russians and the now on top of the Iranians is making some other countries nervous. So, you know, stay tuned. Let's just say that that's the, the wild card in this whole thing. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you have a much better insights into the psychologies of the, the people that are at the tiller of those governments. So that's comforting. So I'm kind of just looking at what's going on in the renewable energy and the solar industry. And just recently this week, there's been some earnings announcements of, of big solar companies. And one of them kind of mentioned the fact that with really, really low oil prices, it's it's depressing their stock price and depressing their future sales. So utilities may not be buying as many utility-scale solar plants because the, the price of oil and possibly natural gas keeps going down. How do you see that continuing to evolve? Do you think there's going to continue to be a linkage there or is it going to break at some point? You know, Barry, I, read a, I, I wanted to really be somewhat prepared for this call. And I guess what's shocking to me, and I should have known this, is how little interaction there truly is between the what's going on in crude oil markets and the renewable markets. Because essentially solar and wind, these are applies not for powering combustion engines, they're for making electricity, which is predominantly made through with coal and with natural gas. And, and nuclear, as an example, only 1%. In this country, the, the analysis says it's only about 1% of electricity that comes from this country is from crude oil. So when people talk about this linkage, the linkage isn't there in terms of the direct relationship between crude oil prices and anything that's going on in terms of what your, your bill is going to cost when we're, we're talking about, you know, making decisions about saving money for your, your home heating or your home electricity, excuse me, your home electricity or heating if you're using electric. So you're asking this question as somebody who's in the business who sees some relationship. And the article I read says it's just a, it's a political relationship. Yeah, it, it's it, just, it's a emotional connection. It's a psychology. It's a psychological factor more than it is a true economic factor. Yeah, I, I mean, but I've been... I've those been wa- things are important. Yeah, I've been watching this for a dozen years, and you're absolutely right that oil is not a substitute fuel for solar panels or wind. I mean, there's just almost no overlap, but there is a linkage. And maybe the reason for the linkage is, is just the way Wall Street trades bundles of energy stocks. And, you know, solar's lumped in with oil, and when energy stocks go down, then, you know, solar goes down too. So that's probably and I actually think it's even more than that, Barry. You know, I can tell you, I may be, you know, I'm pretty knowledgeable, but until I started really looking into this, Very few of us really look at our electric bill. We get it. It's got lots of numbers. It's got transmission charges. It's got this charge. It's got a base fixed allocation. And then you've got some 
Then you have truly your consumption figures. And you've got to be a little bit of, of a math whiz to be able to look at these bills and be able to identify, you know, what is your contribution to this? And it's very hard to, to look at your bill when you only get it once a month and go, okay, crude prices have dropped 20% this month. Oh, I see my electric charges are exactly the same. We don't make those linkages. And as a result, think we think, oh, my God, all right, look, crude prices are down. Look at the gasoline at the pump is really low. That has to translate to I must be paying a lot less for, for electricity. We just don't have a real-time feedback mechanism that allows us to make that linkage easily. I mean, you can get into all the other reasons behind it, but I think that's probably part of it is that we, we just don't get – if you saw your electric price flashed on some – on your – you know, when you – on your coffee machine in the morning that said, okay, this is what you're paying for your marginal kilowatt hour today, you know, while you're, you're brewing, you know, your Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks. Then if you saw that that price wasn't budging, even though you've been hearing all these reports and you've seen gasoline prices, we would have a more knowledgeable population, and they would maybe be a little bit more irate as to why are they not getting the same benefit in terms of their marginal cost of electricity. Yeah, I mean, so, that, that's kind of – for gasoline, you see that price flash on every corner in, in every right. town. And, you know, for electric, it's delayed by a month, and it's almost indecipherable. So what do you suggest – you know, just homeowners and businesses do in these uncertain times. Should they go out and buy that SUV? Should they buy an electric vehicle? Or should they just, you know, invest in oil futures? And once again, well, <laughs> no, no specific investment uh, advice okay. here. See, uh, since I don't know how many people are listening to this, and I, I, I don't want to be viewed as self-serving, I mean, I, I personally have been buying, you know, energy futures at these low levels because I'm, and, and I'm patient. I mean, it may take a year or two for prices to come back, Okay. Because we have an overhang of inventory, and it, it could be a while before the Saudis and the rest of the uh, producing countries decide that they have to make cuts. They might want to be patient and see whether or not the shale oil industry here in the U.S. is so heavily impacted at these low levels that they're willing to be patient and wait for essentially more wells to be shut in and more bankruptcies to happen. And they're, they're willing to wait it out and just create a long-term microeconomic situation. So, but I'm not so concerned about that. I just think that we're not going to go. I'm not going to wait for crude prices to go down to 20 to buy. Okay, I'm not so greedy as to worry what's the bottom. I mean, this is pretty good. Eight dollars below average cost to produce it in the world. So, I'm a buyer, but I believe that we'll we'll kick up. Yeah. The so, other area that I think is important is that when there's this low Barry, what happens is not only do consumers incorrectly think that this is somehow affecting their utility prices, they're you know, to a certain extent, natural gas has dropped to relatively low levels, but has not dropped at the level that crude oil has dropped. But the thing is, is that it inhibits, you know, monies that go into research and development. It makes it harder to get the capital raised for really great ideas that can improve and lower the cost of renewable energy. I mean, the innovations I know that in, in solar power have been enormous over the last few years. You've been at the forefront of all of this. And we just don't need low-price environments that are artificially low because of political factors and, and to some extent due to recessionary pressures in the world. We don't need those to inhibit what I call human progress because we ultimately need to get off combustion engine technology. We need to move to cleaner burning fuels. We need to find a better way to get from point A to point B. And anything like this that inhibits and delays that I think is just bad for humanity. 
So, you know, I, I don't want prices to go up where we have to worry about little old ladies freezing, you know, because they, in their homes because they can't afford heating oil. We don't want to get to that point, but we certainly want to, don't want to be so low that it discourages innovation. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, well, that's all the time we've got on this week's Energy Show. And thanks, Jerry, for joining us today on our program. And thanks to all of our listeners for joining us today. If you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website at cinnamonsolar.com. 